the Psychological Society of Ireland podcast with Myra Trasani Kjallik. This time, the psychology of Brexit. Welcome, Faltestach, to the first podcast, the first ever one hosted by the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. We're going to start with the doozy. We're going to start with the psychology of Brexit and think about it hopefully in ways that you've possibly never thought about it before. And I'm joined by not one, but two very special guests to parse this out. First up, we have Professor Brian Hughes at the School of Psychology at NUI Galway. And he's also author of The Psychology of Brexit from Psychodrama to Behavioural Science. And also Professor Ian Robertson, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Trinity College Dublin. Brian, since you wrote the heavy tome, I'm going to start with you. Why study the psychology of Brexit? Well, Brexit is a, an overarching, self-imposed social and cultural crisis. It's a fundamentally uh, revolutionary uh, decision taken by the British political system under duress and under pressure. And in many ways, it is a, a, an existential decision um, by, by, by a population uh, of, of, of a significant country in the world. We can all see the chaos that ensues. What I would say from a psychological point of view is that there is an organisation within that chaos. There is a way of explaining aspects to it and hopefully, therefore, predicting what happens next and dealing with that in advance. That sounds um, fairly formidable. I see Ian just nodding along here and smiling kind of seguinely. Ian, what do you make of that? I, I agree completely. I think we have to accept as well that it is a phenomenon of uh, a new age of communication, technology. There's no doubt whatsoever that um, the methods of Cambridge Analytica and the political movers behind them were significant players in manipulating emotions in a way to produce this, uh, I think everyone would agree, emotionally driven cultural phenomenon, which uh, goes against a lot of the rational um, evidence-based uh, thinking about the consequences of this. I'm aware as we sit here talking in our little booth amongst ourselves, we could be seen as a bad joke. An Irish woman, an Irish man and a Scotsman discuss Brexit. And it could be possibly seen as we're seeing this from our own nationalistic slant. You know, so what would you, would you counter that, Ian? Uh, no, because I, I don't think so, because I have so many friends in England who feel absolutely the way I do about this strange event. Um, and But that being said, in big countries and majority people have to think less about their relationships with other people than small countries and small minorities. So women have to think more and interpret more when they're in a meeting dominated by men. And small countries have to think more and understand more when they're in the presence of big countries. So Scotland and Ireland are small countries in relation to a big one. Uh, there is less obligation on power. Power gives you, frees you up from some of the necessity for trying to understand things from other people's point of view and also for understanding complex relationships. It allows you to be more of an actor without reflection. I think as well when we talk about small countries, Brian, and ourselves, we probably, well, first of all, when we woke up, we probably never expected Brexit referendum actually go through, and it did. And we probably didn't think that this was going to affect us as a nation and us as individuals and us as different groups within Irish society, that it was going to psychologically affect us. And when I say Irish society, obviously, I'm also talking as well about not only us in the Republic, but Northern Ireland. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it affects Irish society in many, many ways. Um, and, uh, our culture is intertwined. We've spent uh, hundreds of years, not just the history of the European Union, uh, engaging with the UK in a particular way and developing a shared culture in many respects. You walk down the street, you look at the uh, uh, signs above the doors of the shops, uh, you look at the, uh, the, the the programs on television, you look at our newspapers and the shared content, the language uh, community we share with the United Kingdom. Uh, we, we have a shared history. Um, and for, for, for the last period of European Union uh, membership, we have a shared uh, economic uh, history as well. And that's now going to be sundered. So there is a, a real practical uh, reality to that that changes our lives, changes our existence. Uh, for example, um, if there is a no deal Brexit on the 1st of November, there will be a tariff on things like flour. Um, and, and, and we only produce 12% of our own flour here. So and even to have uh, bread in the supermarket shelves uh, is going to uh, be uh, something difficult for us. Um, uh, and, and, and it's going to cost more if it's there. So there will be immediate... Um, what seem like trivial things, but immediate fundamental things that change in our daily lives. Our economy and our food and our um, uh, entertainment and our travel options, our employment uh, landscape, all of that will have to readjust if the United Kingdom becomes a third country and we remain in the European Union, which of course we will. Is that now, maybe, maybe I'm making too much of a reach here, but is that too much of a psychological reach to think that my flour is going to be more expensive, therefore my buns are going to be more expensive or my bread is going to be more expensive and all these things. Or is it the cumulative effect of all these little changes building up to create perhaps potentially in some people's psychological, at the very least adversity or instability? Well, indeed, I think we have had a comfort zone or a comfortable history for a very long period of time. Uh, the existence of borders around the world is perfectly normal, but for European Union member states, it's actually quite unusual. Uh, the border now is going to be reimposed, not just the border with Northern Ireland, but the border uh, between ourselves and the United Kingdom as well. And that creates a very confined space for us to exist in. And it will have all these knock-on effects um, uh, in terms of the way in which we, leave our, we lead our lives and the way in which we organise our society. When I was researching this podcast, uh, you both sent me really extensive documents and documentation and explaining psychologically how, how it happened and how it's affected people, us and other people in the European Union and in the UK. And I just thought it was very interesting in that a lot of it comes back that we all kind of think we're think or at the very least we think we're a lot stronger emotionally and a lot more robust against things like advertising and in-group and thinking and all this kind of stuff than we actually are. Yeah, you're absolutely right we we are driven by our gut feelings and our emotional reactions to a horribly pervasive extent. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves as rational actors, but we still vote very much the way our parents vote. We, we, uh, we our tastes or the brands we go for are shaped by sophisticated processes that we're unaware of. So, and I think that what has changed in both America and in Britain, I think this is the forefront, we've seen it in Italy and France as well, is the sophistication of using uh, social media to really, really harness that fact that we are driven by unconscious and processes of priming and conditioning and emotionally driven behaviour that really 
we have to cop on now if we're going to, if we're, if we're going to, because democracy really is a threat here. And I do believe the Brexit referendum was a manipulation of democracy to get the result. It was such a, a narrow. Uh, people, you could say that, but of course, other people might be of the opinion, Ian, that was it manipulation or was it just that they were playing to what people actually thought deep down? Well, um, so so the the research since I wrote the article I sent you the research on who voted for Brexit, who who voted for Brexit. There was two psychological factors mm. that really predicted a vote for Brexit. One was a perception of external threat, and that was harnessed very much by the Farage campaign. You know the the sign, and, and he he said to the uh, parliamentary committee, he said. You know, the NHS should be for British um, uh, people. Uh, the tuberculosis is being brought into this country mainly from Southern and Eastern Europe. So he was bringing in, he was capitalising this external threat. The second thing was not a not a strengthening of British or English identity. It was a rejection of a European identity. Uh, so these two very powerful psychological factors were completely harnessed and hijacked, if you like, by a very sophisticated campaign. That being said, Barack Obama used similar methods to win the presidency. Mm. <laughs> he absolutely did, yeah. Yeah, I, I think perspective is a hugely important thing here because uh, people talk about echo chambers um, and uh, it's quite clear that in the European or in the uh, uh, Brexit context that the UK population has split into two camps. Um, And a lot of the professional classes and the media classes are in the Remainer camp, whether they identify as such or not. Um, And and, and one thing we do know, and uh, Ian alluded to this earlier, is that we are are perhaps unaware of the extent to which we're influenced by circumstances, by other people's opinions, by the group we feel we identify with. And uh, psychologists also uh, call uh, out the third person effect, where we, we, we feel immune to the reasoning errors that other people are susceptible to. So when people fall into the trap of believing rumours about uh, immigrants, for example, we believe, we all believe um, that we are immune to that, that type of manipulation or that type of, uh, of, of influence. Um, but the reality is, it's not just leavers who voted with their hearts instead of their heads. It's also Remainers who voted with their hearts instead of their heads. And, and, and it is difficult for any side of the debate to say that they are somehow immune to reasoning error and they make uh, evidence-based decisions and uh, draw evidence-based conclusions all the time. But wouldn't you be exhausted if you were constantly making evidence-based decisions in your life? <laughs> Correct. And so you rely on other people and you try to filter uh, what they say to you based on how reasonable an authority you believe them to be. Um, uh, and that is, I mean, uh, Ian is quite right. Again, you can intervene in a certain way to manipulate people's impression of what is authoritative information. And we are susceptible to that. But we we all are. I mean, uh, there are remainder myths as well as, 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 as lever myths. Um, and 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 we 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 all see the other group as slightly less sophisticated and less and, and more gullible than ourselves. And that is a that the European Union itself runs a Eurobarometer survey, and and, and it used to show that there were several at different types of attitude to the European Union right across Europe. And before Brexit, there were ten to fifteen different sort of clusters of attitude in the United Kingdom population. Since Brexit, it's become basically two clusters: you're either pro-Europe or you're anti-Europe, and that division is a very, um, uh, it's very, it's very, it's a, it's a very sharp reminder to us of the way which societies can quickly collapse and quickly become 
characterized by conflict. I, I, and I agree with Brian a lot about the we're unaware of our tribal thinking. That being said, there is no doubt that the Remainer campaign was a one of logic and evidence and threats of you know logical arguments, while the Lever campaign was one of emotion. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt also that the people who voted Leave were significantly older and significantly less educated. Um, could you yeah. could you almost say? I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no. But could could you say that uh, the 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 leave campaign was more emotionally intelligent in that it was able to read and understand the anxieties of uh, the United Kingdom people in a way that the the, the the Remain camp didn't even see coming. I absolutely agree with you there. And that's where the, 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 the sophisticated psychological manipulation. That being said, it was also sly. Mm-hmm. It was also very sly because what they... So, for example, the people of Northern England who had been so... Who's, lives and communities have been so devastated by neoliberal policies of Margaret Thatcher, the destruction of their industries, and all the economy really, or most of the economy centred in the, in the London area, the financial area. These people needed to fight against having been served a very bad hand where there was no decentralisation, etc. And they, but what they they were manipulated into hanging their hat, their grievances on the European label, and blaming, in the same, and blaming Europe for what was nothing to do with Europe's policies, the, the regional policies, um, and that was the very clever association of their poverty and, to some extent, their vote in the referendum has worked, well. It's worked in the sense that Boris Johnson goes up and promises investment in the north, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for the first time, you know, d- doing the stuff that should have been done 30 years ago when you close a mining community, you try and invest. To, to, so so to an extent it's worked, but it's worked that these, they were cleverly manipulated into attributing their, their, their ills to the European Union, which is not the case. The other thing they were, they were attributing, they were to blame immigration, but actually the immigration they were concerned about was mainly immigration from the, 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 the Asian side subcontinent, which has nothing to do with Europe whatsoever. So they were slyly manipulated in a very clever, and I agree with you, emotionally clever way by the Leave campaign. Yes, I, I don't <clears throat> disagree with, with, with that assessment. Um, I guess the, the, the lesson I draw from uh, the psychology uh, research would be to, as well as critiquing the, the, the other side's uh, analysis of events, you also must critique your own and uh, the Remainer side, I would argue, um, uh, are, are as inclined to vote with their hearts as well as their heads. So there is a passion about Europe. They feel it is the right thing to do. There is also a sense in which it is an in-group identification. This is our place in the world. It's very little to do with a rigorous assessment of the economic costs and benefits. I mean, there, there, there are, there are, there, that information is in the public domain, but I suspect that most... Um, uh, Remainer, uh, you know, people on the street, so to speak, couldn't give you a detailed analysis of all of that. But they feel uh, emotionally that it is it is wrong that uh, Britain is being taken out of the European Union, um, and, and 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 I would argue that that is that is always there. And from the Irish point of view, for example, uh, in 1922, Ireland left the United Kingdom and detached itself from the uh, British Empire, a population of 500 million people. Um, it took a shot in the dark. It, it, it economically isolated itself. 
Um, and we don't look back on that point in our history and say that this was uh, an act of economic self-harm in the way in which we say that Leave voters are committing an act of economic self-harm. Uh, and I doubt very much there was a sophisticated uh, uh, understanding of the economic implications of Irish independence at the time. But people rationalised it as uh, something that was right as opposed to wrong on a moral level and a sentimental level rather than an economic one. I feel that it, it reminds me very much of when I'm listening to you two gentlemen speak here about it reminds me of Hillary Clinton and her comment about the basket of deplorables. Yes. That's the other thing as well that we all hold our minds and our mindset to a very high level and we couldn't possibly ever be wrong or be seen as stupid and the worst thing somebody could do is like you said they're the psychology yeah. of the Remainers they weren't as smart they weren't as emotionally intelligent because what they did was they othered other people and said you're wrong and you're silly and that is the worst thing you can do when you're it's, trying to bring somebody to your side of an argument It's called the backfire effect and there's a lot of research on it and we know it from uh, areas such as uh, vaccination campaigns trying to tell people to vaccinate their children and, 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 and the more evidence you provide a lot of interventions that are based on rational evidence um, uh, actually reinforce the scepticism of the of the people who don't want to vaccinate their children. Um, and you, yet you, we have uh, we have very high vaccination rates. We do because, because we use that evidence intelligently. Perhaps we yeah. do, but also we use a lot of sentimental reasoning around vaccinating children in terms of, you know, the the harm to the child being being an emotional trigger rather than the statistical likelihood of the harm to the child being the decisive factor. So I think there's a lot of emotional communication involved in vaccination campaigns that's very effective and we're very gl- lucky to have them. Um, but I simply I agree with the point made earlier that people are emo- voting and thinking emotionally most, most of the time um, and they, they engage in identity protective motivated reasoning. They, 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 they want to preserve their sense of self and they're motivated and biased in the way in which they do that. You're looking at a group polarisation situation, a dichotomization of the population um, that psychologically uh, is, is, I think the word was used earlier, is, is tribal uh, uh, rather than logical. I think I disagree with you there, Brian. Right, the, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I think I disagree with you that there's an equal uh, play of, of emotional fact, that, that the Remainers are equally, if you like, emotionally driven to the, to the levers. I, I don't think that's the case. I think that they're self-interested, for sure. The, and I count myself as a Remainer. We have benefited from globalization. We are the educated, fortunate, educated people who have benefited from globalization, of which the European Union is a very, very strong manifestation. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's, it's a very, in my opinion, very good manifestation of globalization because of its, of its heavy regulation of capitalism, unlike in the States. So I, I think that. The European Union started off as an intellectual effort, unlike English nationalism, which is at base an emotional, uh, an emotionally driven, uh, unreflective feeling. I do not believe that that the Europe that adherence to the European Union identity is that. I believe it's becoming an emotional uh, identity. Hopefully, in my opinion, hopefully slightly tribal mm-hmm. as we go on. But actually, the balance, I believe, in Remainers is much more in favour of rational arguments because with a, an, a particularly a no-deal Brexit, the, the, the people who voted for Brexit, the poorest people are going to be the ones who will suffer the most. I, so I, it's I, against their self-interest. I, 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 well, I appreciate the point, but I allude earlier to Irish independence as well. You could draw the same analysis, albeit much further back in history, that you know the political class at the time, which represented the people at the time, 
uh, chose to take that risk because even though it was economically dangerous, it was, in nationalistic terms, the right thing to do. And nobody now regrets doing it. Except Ireland was a colonised state. It Britain was, is not a... Britain is a major player in, in, a, in, a, in I, an I, alliance I understand that, of, of but all, a lot of this is down to how you define the terms. I mean, Ireland was a component of the United Kingdom with, the, with members in Parliament and so on. Um, it, 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 is a, it, it is comparable in lots of ways. Um, but the point... I'm. You can you can quantify and say this is equal to that, but my point is essentially that one of the reasons there is dichotomization is because both sides feel that they are rational and the opposite side is irrational. So you have this notion of the Ramoner um, or the Romaniac or people who are crybabies and snowflakes and so on because they can't accept the will of the people. All that language is essentially a mirror image of the of of, of the descriptions that Remainers use uh, to talk about leavers, that they're emotional, they're voting with, their base motives riled by demagogues. Um, they're not voting logically, they're not thinking logically. You brought in colonisation there, Ian, which I thought was very interesting. Did we, and did perhaps the Remainers in the Remain camp and all the people who are talking about Brexit coming up to it, did we all underestimate the memory that a lot of the British hold of the wonderful British Empire and rule Britannia and this kind of stuff and they felt that perhaps that was being eroded which now maybe I'm making another huge leap here then as well but then you also felt your little sense of self was also being slightly eroded by all these new people who had notions of being equal to the British Empire. England is a very unhappy country. If you look at the levels of depression, the levels of drug use, the levels of um, self-harm in, in young, young girls, it is a very unhappy country. I think it's unhappy because of the class system and because of the, the, the vast inequalities that exist there and because the class system means that people don't feel that sense of identity and, and common purpose. I think Brexit has given them a sense of common purpose and so it's been incredibly emotionally empowering for them. But I do agree with you. I think there's a, uh, there's a, nost- a, mal- a malign nostalgia has been activated by the sophisticated um, campaigns of the Leavers. The kind of nostalgia for Just William, for Biggles, for, for, for Billy Bunter. That kind of myth of a 1950s Britain, which was monocultural, monoracial, where you knew your neighbours and there was secure jobs. And, you know, I grew up then. It's, you know, it was a pretty poor and uh, grim place <laughs> then. Um, um, but there's a nostalgia for it. And that is, you know, you'll hear people who, who feel their mining community has closed or their factories have closed. They're, they're, they're living in this ghastly, um, deprived uh, northern town saying, we used, to, we used to own three quarters of the world. And that, that these, these nostalgic Biggles and Billy Bunter, they're all behind them. It's all the empire. And, and of course, the, the ruling people who are taking Britain out of um, uh, Europe now, all, of course, were trained in, to be trained to be the officer class of the empire. That's what the public system, public school system was. And, and that's why they don't feel a, a strong identity with their British, counter, their, their working class counterparts. They, and that's why they feel um, they cannot be equals with Romania or equal with Ireland. They hate it. They're superior because they're an empire. And that is absolutely in the unconscious and sometimes conscious minds of most of the Brexiteer of all their classes is a major factor, I think. So are we supposed to believe then that perhaps mm. the voter in South Shields up outside Newcastle or Salford in Manchester subconsciously thought he was better than me and you? 
Yes. Well, I put it this way. <laughs> put it this. Put it this way. Brexit was an opportunity for him to, 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 to remind us to remind to remind him and us about that. Yeah. I want. I wonder to what extent we can be absolutely sure of that. I mean, mm. I think there's a, there there is absolutely merit in the analysis. It's also possible that this is after the fact reasoning that, we, that you know, we do see, um, you, know, you know, people have to rationalise their decision. Uh, you have this whole business of post-purchase rationalisation. You've paid for something, so you have to like it. Or what psychologists sometimes call the IKEA effect. You know, we built it, so we have to like it. Um, uh, and, 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 and demagogues and politicians and, and, and people who are good at rhetoric are, are, are often skilled at telling stories after the fact. This is our destiny. This is why we are here. Um, you see it in other European countries and indeed other countries around the world. Uh, and it is a corrosive um, national myth making. Um, but I, I wonder to what extent it happens before people take this plunge. I think um, uh, Ian is absolutely right in terms of the isolationism or in terms of the anti-immigrant fears that people had. I think these drove people. Um, uh, people were unhappy with their economic circumstances. A lot of the British election study data suggests that uh, that, that, that uh, people who had a, poor, a sense of poor prospects ahead of them uh, were more likely to vote for Brexit uh, than to vote against Brexit. And that's consistent with prospect theory and other things we look at in behavioural economics. Um, that, that you're more likely to take a risk if you feel you have nothing to lose. Uh, all of these immediate factors, I think, um, uh, were, were, were all part of it as well. And the national myth-making may have been part of it or may have been written after the fact, so to speak, to give people a sense of optimism about surviving the crash that's about to happen. Other European countries had empires too, uh, France and, 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 and Spain and Portugal, even places like Germany and, and Sweden and, and Denmark, you could argue. Um, uh, but they're not agitating in the same way to leave the European Union. They're, they're not uncomfortable in the European Union in the way that Britain was. So the empire story is part of it, but I think some of it, it's hard to unpick after the fact what caused what. It's funny when you mention uh, Just William and I'm thinking of all these wonderful classic BBC programmes we've seen over the years. And now when I think of Brexit and Boris Johnson at the helm, I can't help but think of Frank Spencer and some others do have him in that he's knocked everything down and has no plan. Maybe the IKEA flat pack is all opened up, but we have no idea how what piece of furniture is even going to be built. Now, perhaps maybe this is where the whole Brexit thing went wrong, that maybe, and we used the parallel with Ireland way back when, back in the day, there was a half plan there. They wanted to become free from colonial rule. This is the trouble here with Brexit. They wanted to be free from the European Union to stand up on their own two feet, make their own decisions again as they saw, but didn't have a plan. Yeah, and they didn't have a plan. And many of the things they want to do to make their country good again, and it needs it needs to be made good again. Many of the things they could do are entirely possible within the European Union. They're talking now about oh, we will we will have free ports. They could they could have free ports within the EU. Blue for passports. Instance. Blue. The blue passports. <laughs> so yeah, all, yeah, you're right, Brian. Mm. All, all you know the, the blue the things they were looking for. We want to have trade agreement with the whole world. They had the biggest trade trade agreements in the world as part of the EU with with Japan with the Mercosur so coming up. Let's drop back then psychological because we are talking about the whole psychology behind it. How did it become that they decided that the European Union was the problem and perhaps not the way they ran themselves within the European Union? Is it classism? I, I think it possibly is. I mean, we sometimes, and we have had the conversations in Ireland too, about criticising governments for uh, not taking responsibility for legislating. So most of the legislation that passes through the Iraq is, is, emanates from Europe in one form or another. 
Um, and, and in Europe can be blamed then for anything bad that happens. Um, and the politicians take credit for anything good that happens. That's that's the attribution error. We all do that to some extent. We, we take credit for our successes and blame circumstances for our failures or a scapegoat if we can find one, such as the European Union. And that discourse has emerged in, in, in Ireland from time to time. But the class system in the UK is certainly a, is certainly a major factor. I mean, some of the um, uh, YouGov polling has been quite interesting in this respect. They, they, they seem to do polls of all sorts of things. But, uh, for example, um, Leave voters in, uh, uh, prefer their men to be clean-shaven compared to Remain voters. Um, 53% prefer clean-shaven men compared to 40% of Remainers. This is where I point out that uh, Brian Hughes has a lovely beard. Well, indeed, yeah. <laughs> uh, at the time of, of recording, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Leave voters are twice as likely to prefer their stake well done than, than Remain voters. Uh, Leave voters believe, uh, YouGov have established, that Doctor Who would vote Tory in an upcoming general election, whereas Remain voters believe that Doctor Who would vote for Labour. So there, there, there are many different sort of culture differences um, uh, that, that reflect a background and upbringing and part of you know, geography. Um, and, and, and one analysis that, 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 uh, that, that people have offered uh, relates to, um, you know, the, the, the Leave vote type of person has always been there but they've been talked down to by the elites um, and I use that term very loosely uh, and now the elites are getting a kicking and they don't like it and, and, and they become you know so, so, so they no longer have sway these are the types of people who are well well educated up to a point and, and control media voices and what have you but there are all the left behind quote unquote um, who have been there for a very long time and um and Brexit is kind of their, their vehicle to vent their frustrations at the class system around them. I agree completely with that. But I, I think you're right that uh, the class is critical here. And the, you know, the reason there was a referendum was because UKIP was making such advances in the elections. And David Cameron was worried about the future of the Tory party. And he thought he could put it to rest with the referendum. So there is this, there has been this very, very... Uh, visceral anti-European uh, movement within the Tory party, with a minority of the Tory party, but it's visceral. It's highly emotional. And I do believe that it goes back to a feeling of uh, superiority, that we are, a, we are, we are, we are not an a, 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 a ordinary middle-ranking little European, for, you know, first among, we, we, first among equals. We are not equals. We are better than you. You're holding us back. We are having to interact with Italy and Romania and Ireland and, you know, Poland, you know. I do believe there was that, that class superiority um, that, that goes back to the empire, goes back to the, the officer class training of the public school system. I do believe that that group of people, that sentiment was what, with the help of Cambridge Analytica and Dominic Cummings to, to hijack and to get to hijack these poor people whose lives were pretty miserable, who, whose industries had been ruined and, to, and a lot of whom had never vote, never voted typically. And the big the success was to use social media and other methods to get them out and vote. And that's what happened. So we now know that nobody, not even us, and we're amazing people sitting in here, are immune to emotional manipulation or societal influences or influences of our peers around us, Brian. Can we assume then that um, obviously Brexit is never going to happen in Ireland, but could we see another scenario? Could something like this ever happen in our society? Uh 
Well, I mean, could the political system split? Could uh, people um, uh, rise up in favour of an anti-establishment cause? I think absolutely it could happen. Um, it's hard to kind of uh, speculate about the entire future and all possible um, things that could happen in that way. But in loose terms, I don't think we are um, uh, immune to any of that. Historians sometimes talk about this in terms of the cycle of, 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 of upheavals and that what you sometimes see, and it's a quite a depressing thought when you break it down, is that societies are more likely to go to war after a particular amount of time just long enough for them to forget what the war was like the last time they had it. So you have this sense of comfort, this sense of 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 of, of inevitable um, stasis uh, or, or homeostasis, um, and and that uh, everything is ticking along nicely, and uh, the risk of messing everything up is is abstract. Um, and I do think that uh, the longer you remain in a comfort zone, if you forget your history, if you forget that these things happen, and if you fall into this illusory superiority bias that psychologists talk about and believe this could never happen to us, then I think you're at more risk rather than less. And we do need to be watchful for that. No, I I, I do agree. I, I'm slightly um, mistrustful of laws of history. You know, the idea. Yeah. I do think that it's we're now in a situation where everything is much more up for grabs. We're much more in, we we have to control our behaviour in, 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 a, in a mass level much more and we can control it much more than we have in the past. So I think, I think that, um, you know, we really have to get a grip of, of what's happened and Brexit is the kind of canary in the mine here as, as is the, the Trump election. Uh, finally, before I wrap things up, um, I'm struck, like I said, as we were discussing this, that and after everything you both have pointed out about how we can fall into superiority traps and thinking traps and all these kind of things, are we as Irish people and as a Scottish individual here as well, have we now fallen into the trap of thinking, sure, those Brits over there, they don't know what they're doing? And is that going to create perhaps different problems as well? I think there's a, there's a risk of that. I think that um, uh, we do have um, scapegoats in our political psychologies and it is uh, tempting for us to uh, blame others rather than ourselves or to, to shift blame to others um, if things start to fall apart here in Ireland. There are certain things we can control and certain things we can't and we have to roll with the punches to a certain extent. But I do think that there is something that we need to think to talk about in Ireland and that is in relation to our uh, dismissiveness of the British experience. Um, the way in which we dismiss, uh, the, I mean, I don't like the term the Brits because the way it's used in Ireland uh, has a dark history, when in reality, Britain is a country full of diverse people with um, who, whose political leaders don't necessarily reflect their existence and their experiences and their sentiment about the world. Um, and it would be wrong to, um, to, to be patronising or to have schadenfreude about uh, the average British person who is at the centre of this storm that we're so concerned about here. Um, uh, the, the effect on our um, economy is, is worrying. Imagine being in the United Kingdom. Um, it's very distressing. And I would have um, great solidarity and great sympathy for, 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 for British people. But I do think there is something there in the Irish psyche, um, not to use that term too loosely, um, but something in our, in our political and, and cultural tradition, which um, uh, seems to liberate a kind of anti-British sentiment all too easily. 
as it does in the Scottish sentiment, although I, in the absence of a Scottish passport, I do travel on an Irish passport. So, uh, so not I, have, a blue I, have, passport. I have Irish citizenship, but not <laughs> Scottish citizenship. Um, no, uh, I do think that Britain, what distresses me so much is it is the repository of such wonderful values in science, in, in decency, in, in human rights. Compared to, say, Italy, the amount of foreign aid that Britain gives is, is enormous. Italy gives virtually nothing. Um, and, and so it, there's, there's a goodness and, and, and a set of qualities in, in our biggest neighbour that uh, we, we, we do not want to alienate them. We want to be best friends and partners uh, with them. And I agree with you. We don't want to other them, other them with terms like the Brits, as the way Brian was saying. Well, there you have it. I know we could discuss this for hours longer and Brexit probably still wouldn't be resolved, but that this is what we know so far. Brexit is not politics. It's not leave or remain. Brexit is psychological. Brexit is Brexit. Sinead, Slonka Foyle.